Hey, brewery lovers, welcome back to another episode of The Brew Daddies. Richard here. Unfortunately, Adam is day jobbing today and could not join me. I know, I know. He's, 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 he's yeah. He should just quit his job <laughs> and do this all the time, but he can't. Um, I'm really excited today because I've got in the studio John Hall. Uh, John is an award-winning journalist who covers the beer industry. He's the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine as well as All About Beer. He's the co-host of the podcast, Steal This Beer. Yeah. Which if you haven't listened to, you really should. It is tons of fun. Yeah, if you like train wrecks. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is uh, a yeah, lot beer of fun. Beer-fueled train wrecks uh, in your ears. <laughs> uh, we are the podcast for you. Yeah, it, I listened to a bunch over the weekend, and uh, my kid kept saying, what are you laughing at? What are you laughing at? Because normally, my, my daughter's 17 years old, and okay. so normally when I'm listening to stuff and, and, and I'm laughing, I'll show her or let her listen to whatever it is, and I was like, you're not oh, going to care no, about any yeah. of this. None of um, it matters to you. Yeah, we work blue on that show, too, sometimes, and, and I've gotten dinged uh, in in the past where, you know, folks have been like, hey, man, you know, I was driving my four-year-old to school, and then, you know, you dropped the F-bomb, you know, about a beer, and it's like... I can't like control your parenting. Like it says <laughs> right. E next to the next right. to the thing. Like you should know. And also like maybe have wheels on the bus on instead of me and Augie. Like you know, goodness. Seriously. Anyway. If you're driving your kid around, yeah. don't listen to a beer <laughs> podcast. Um <laughs> all right. So John uh has just put out a brand new book. It's called Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint. Uh it's a really good comprehensive, I think, overview of brewing uh, and the brewery scene and the direction that breweries are going uh, in modern America. Yeah. And uh, I learned a lot from it. Uh, it's totally worth picking up this book. Let's dive right in, John. Yeah. So one of the things that came out pretty quickly in the book is that you disagree, I think, with the widespread use of the term craft beer. Yes. And craft brewing, uh, you add, you just, you tell people it's just all about good, good brewing, good beer. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing, and this isn't something that I take lightly or something that I came to the decision on, you know, with the snap of a finger or, or overnight. The word craft has been attached to beer for the better part of the last two decades or thereabouts. And it has, in the beginning, served a very important purpose, and it meant something back then. Uh, back in the time when we had a th less than a thousand breweries in the country, and you know, small was trying to find a way to differentiate itself from the the big, large brewing conglomerates like Anheuser Busch or Miller Coors or et cetera. Um, and they needed to get away from the term microbrew, which right. in the late 1990s, early 2000s, ha had really sort of become uh, an albatross around its neck. Uh, there were some serious quality problems that were happening in the industry. Uh, micro as small was almost being dismissed as insignificant in some ways. And mm -hmm. so the word craft was attached to beer. A guy named uh, Vince Catone, who's a writer, is, is credited with using it for the first time, but didn't actually ever define it. Uh, right, it was yeah. sort of like you knew what it was if you saw it. And, and pornography. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. No, exactly. I think I said that in the book. And, and that's absolutely true. Like you knew what craft was back in the day. And now we're at 7,000 breweries in the country. And there's a lot of brands that would appear to be craft 
that are not, you know, uh, Goose Island uh, or you sure. know, Ten Barrel or Golden Road or a lot of these other, you know, Revolver and some of these other Widmer, uh, et cetera, that, that have come out. Um, and the Brewers Association, which is the trade association that represents small breweries, uh, has defined craft brewer. They've never defined craft beer, but they need a way to define their membership. And so they've, they've defined craft brewer and they call it small, traditional, independent. So, you know, less than six million barrels and uh, they use purest ingredients and they, you know, supposedly, and, uh, you know, they're, they're independent and in that they are less than 25% owned by a large brewing conglomerate. And right. that's where the last thing, yeah. like when that started to change and, and we started to, to, to look at the ownership numbers, I really started to question, you know, why the 25% or, and did it actually matter at the end of the day? And so for me, craft doesn't mean quality. You, you go to some beer festivals and you see people wearing T-shirts that say, uh, drink craft, not crap. And right. they're talking about Budweiser being crap or Miller Lite being crap or something like that. I've had some beer from craft breweries or independent breweries, as, as some of them go by these days, that are terrible. Like that are just awful, awful to drink. They're diacetyl bombs or they're undercarbonated or overoxidized or, or, or whatever. I would rather drink 100 Budweiser's before – I would drink a, a pint of diacetyl. And so the word craft doesn't necessarily always mean good. And so that's where I, I've come to sort of this, this revelation of let's support good brewing and let's call out bad brewing when it exists. You know, And so if you are an independent brewer, and that's the word that's sort of taking over for craft now as well, uh, because Goose Island will call themselves a craft brewer sure. or Avery Brewing Company, which sold 40% of themselves or whatever it was to a foreign brewer, uh, they still call themselves, you know, uh, uh, you know, a leading craft brewer or, you know, a traditional craft brewer or something like that. They're, they're holding on to these things and ownership doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think for me, if, if you can recognize off flavors, if you can recognize uh, that you're getting substandard beer, that a brewery is serving you beer in a dirty glass or, you know, that they're just trying to ride off of coattails of, you know, hey, we're craft, so you should support us and not a big brewery, even though this liquid isn't nearly as good as, you know, a Bud Heavy or a Goose IPA or or whatever. I don't think that that exists. So we should support good beer, good brewing, regardless of size, regardless of ownership. It's interesting because I have been one of those people who sort of always referred to the Buds and the Millers as as crap, but lately I've started to see it, you know, the American light lager, the beer flavored beer yeah. <laughs> kind of thing as having a place in the pantheon, frankly, of of beer. And it's not something that I'm going to drink regularly or even often, but I'll tell you an ice cold bud on the beach is sometimes a really good thing. <laughs> Yeah, I you know I tell I tell the story. There's a, a buddy of mine who uh, who did two tours uh, uh, in Iraq and came back and joined the VFW uh, locally in Jersey, which is like kind of funny because like you know he was the youngest guy by you know like thirty years, right. uh, forty years uh, hanging out at the VFW, um, which which is cool. So I'd go and hang out with them. This is years ago, and they had two beers on offer: uh, a Bud Keg that was tapped probably twice a week because they went through that much, and they had some bottled Sam Adams that went out of code like five years earlier. Right. And I'm looking around, and here's these guys who have served, and I never did, and you know they're they're all drinking this beer, and you know they've they've been shot at in foreign lands, and they've served the country, and it's like, well, 
damn it, if it's good enough for these guys, like, hell yeah, I'm going to drink this. And, you know, it, there, there's a time and a place for every beer as well. And I right. think to dismiss a beer based on ownership, you know, you have a an iPhone, I guess, in front mm-hmm. of you right now. You know, I have a Samsung in my pocket. You know, we're not using artisanal phones. Right. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, I drive a Ford at home. I'm not driving, you know, like Tony's car, you know, like whatever, you know, it, it's ownership matters in some places and you want to vote, you know, with your dollars in a certain way. Beer has given us a chance to really drill down and to drink local. But that doesn't always mean that it's the best option available. And right. that to me shows that smaller breweries of these 7,000 that are operating in the country right now, there's still a good number of them that have a long way to go to either up their game or to face the hard reality that maybe this isn't for them. You know, just because you can open a brewery or just because you can get the money or just because you have a passion for beer doesn't necessarily mean that you can make beer, you know, that people will respond to or drink. And if you're not bringing your A game, especially like, you know, here we are in D.C. where there's what, a a dozen or so breweries in the general area, like in the city proper. Yeah. And then you get out to the suburbs and there's even more. If you are the weakest link of those breweries, the more brewers that open – and the yeah. weaker your link becomes, you will eventually go out of business. You either have to adapt or die, you know, yeah. and adapting means making better beer. And it's interesting because, when, you know, as somebody who obviously has been to a lot of the breweries in in the D.C. area and part of what I do and what Adam and I do on this show is we go visit breweries. There are so often where we go to a brewery and what we find is OK beer and, you know, f- four years ago, that was fine. Because, yeah, great. Like, everybody get out there and figure out how to do this and make it good. But now there's more than 70 in the greater sort of what we call the DMV, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. in the D.C. metro area. There are tons of breweries. And there are places where there's a brewery every other block. It's almost like a Starbucks now. And if you you can't make great beer, then – it, you're not going to survive anymore. I would go even just a, a step further. It doesn't necessarily have to be great beer, but Gr- defect-free yeah. beer. And I yes. and I say this in the book, and I firmly believe this. So, um, a couple of months ago, I was I, I, this story didn't make it into the book, I don't think. But uh, I I was in the Pacific Northwest, and I had met a brewery owner. Uh, who came to a talk that I was giving and invited me to to come by this brewery if I was ever in the area. And it turned out that I was in the area. Uh, I had an unexpected change in my plans and I was like, oh, this brewery that this person had mentioned, I'm going to I'm going to stop by. And so I walked in unannounced. Owner saw me and was like, oh, my gosh, this is this great that you're here. Can I give you a tour? And I saw their stainless and uh, I had time for one beer before I had to get to the airport. And I said, so what's your flagship? And the owner says, oh, it's an alt beer. And I said, that's really cool. Like, I don't get to see, you know, alt beers as flagships all that often. I'll have a pint, you know, just sight unseen, that kind of thing. And I'm looking around and they have uh, all their merch up against uh, the back of the bar. And uh, on their T-shirts, they have this new upside down bottle independent logo uh, on the sleeve of their short sleeve shirts uh, that represents that they are not uh, Anheuser-Busch or that they're not a big evil corporation. And I said, wow, that's that's really cool. I hadn't seen this on clothing, brewery clothing at this point. The owners as well. You know, we believe on wearing our independence on our on our sleeve. And I said, well, very noble. And then uh, they put a pint of diastole down in front oh, of me. Oh, no. And, and they asked me, you know, what I thought about the beer. And I said, you know, maybe diastole rest or, you know, maybe, the, you know, there's things that you can do here. And, you know, have you have you noticed this buttery popcorn flavor that you're getting? And, you know, and, and 
I was as nice as I could be, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, here I was in this person's house or, you know, this person's place. And, um, you know, I didn't want to be a jerk and be like, this is terrible and I don't want to drink it. But I did want to make sure that I was I was driving home the, the point that, like, this isn't OK. Right. And I, I, I later on said to them, if somebody else opens up across the street and makes better beer than you. You can't survive. And what's worse is you know that you're serving beer, and this is the larger point. It doesn't have to be great, but it has to be good. Mm-hmm. You're serving beer that knowingly has diastole in it and that diastole does not belong in an alt beer in this amount, you know, by by any stretch of the imagination. But you are routinely pouring pints of this infected beer, this defective beer, and asking people to pay money for it. That's fraud. Ooh. Yeah, it is though. And that's the thing that I think brewers have to recognize. You don't get a pass because you're small. You don't get a pass because you're independent or craft or or whatever. If you are knowingly serving pints with off flavors in it, green apple, paper, cardboard, whatever, uh, and you're just being, well, you know, it's cool because like we're small and, you know, people are forgiving. No, you are committing fraud by asking for money in return for an inferior product. And that to me is something that I don't think a lot of brewers who are doing this type of thing recognize. And I think what's even worse is if they don't even know what diastole is or that they're not picking up on it or recognizing, you know, mm-hmm. what's yeah, happening. Right. That's also bad. And yeah. just get out of the industry. Just stop making beer. You know, let the pros do it at that point. Like right. it's um I'm gonna open another yeah, beer please. and we'll see how this one goes. Um but what about the uh what about the the consumers who don't necessarily always know that they're getting uh this is warmed up a little bit, yeah, which no, is it's why cool. it's so foamy. No, it's nice. Um our refrigerators here are like 35 degrees. Okay. So, so. you have to pull them out a couple of hours early. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the consumer who doesn't necessarily know that they're getting a not good beer? Yeah. Doesn't necessarily know that there's diacetyl in what they're drinking. I think that the the consumer base is more savvy than they've ever been. And so five years ago, folks might not know that that buttery flavor – uh, meant something bad because uh, here's the thing. A lot of what we consider off flavors in beer are things that we experience in everyday life that we enjoy. Like we go see right. the latest superhero movie and we get a big tub of popcorn and we eat the popcorn and we don't think that it's a bad flavor. I like you know? green apples. Right. We, yeah, we <laughs> eat green apples. You know, like there's a lot of people who like cream corn. There's a lot of people who, you know, uh, you know, like the smell of, you know, old cardboard and newspapers. You know, it smells like nostalgia. You sure. know, one person once told me. So – we have to sort of retrain our brains uh, for beer like, oh, this is a flaw. Um, and then sometimes – and this is – beer is a series of contradictions as well. Sometimes there's brewers who actually want diastole in their beer. Uh, Dogfish Head did a, uh, a lobster stout a couple of years ago where they wanted right. diastole to come through because lobster and – Butter, butter, yeah, go, sure, go well sure. together. You know, I was at the Great American Beer Festival this year, and Randy Mosher, um, and everybody should read Randy Mosher's book called Tasting Beer, which answers your question much more eloquently than I am right now. But he had this uh, cherry beer that had a hint of diacetyl that gave it this cherry strudel type taste to it. But right off the bat, I noticed the diacetyl, but he cut me off of the knees before I could even say anything. And he's like, I'm sure you're getting diacetyl and I want you to know that you should think about cherry strudel or cherry breakfast pastry. And as soon as he did that, my brain flipped and I was like, oh, yeah, this is delightful. This is delicious because that's the thing. But when you walk into a brewery and it's – here's a stout that we don't know any better and it's you know diacetyl, 
you know, that that's a larger problem. So I think for the consumer base, it comes from uh, drinking a, a wide variety of things. Um, and if you are curious about beer, there's some folks who are just going to show up at a bar and just order a pint and drink it no matter what. Uh, they know they like hoppy or they know they like roasty or they know they like farmhouse or, or whatever. And they're just going to order that. And it's just going to be background noise to them as they drink. If you're if you're serious about beer, take five minutes and read the BJCP certifications uh, to see what's acceptable from a professional level or not. You know, read the GABF guidelines. You know, everything is online. You can, you know, do the research on it and then try to find the benchmarks of the style. You know, uh, we're drinking a Saison right now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and this is really quite nice, but I, I like to point people to Saison de Pont. You know, I mean, right, it is yeah. the granddaddy of uh, that style, and I think it is it is one of the best examples uh, still that's being made these days. So drink the classics, drink what people have built the baseline off of, and then if you start to see deviations that don't necessarily match with that, or also just sort of trust your gut. It's the same way of like if you're sniffing a half gallon of milk that's been in your fridge, and you're like, ah, <laughs> maybe one more day, maybe. Yeah. But if something feels a little bit off. Trust your gun on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you think of this? I've been talking too much. I haven't fully considered it. Um, okay. It's got this nice spicy. It's a peppercorn saison. Oh, that's, okay. That's where it comes from. Um, this is three stars. Where mm-hmm. are they? Three stars is uh, northeast D.C. Okay. It's actually just a little over a mile from my house. This is my house beer. Nice. This is what I keep in the fridge. And I this is the first brewery I ever worked for. Really? Yeah. I just would go in and help them can. But uh this is one of my favorites. Yeah, I I I kinda dig this. Um yeah, it's got that spicy thing that I, I wouldn't have guessed uh peppercorn. I was almost thinking like Saz or uh something like that coming off of it. But uh yeah, it's got a little bit of that like banana clovey. It's got like a little Hefeweizen thing going on yeah. with it as well. Um Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I dig it. I'm glad. I'm glad. So, okay, moving on. Yes, sir. Now, because this is a podcast that is primarily about breweries, and uh-huh. you've been to over 1,300 yeah, breweries it's weird, right? worldwide. Yeah. Uh, no, it's something to it's something to aspire <laughs> to. <laughs> um, I mean, look, Adam and I got into this podcast thing. We were like, well, we're never going to make money doing this. But hopefully we'll get to go to a lot of breweries and get some free beer out sure. of it. And so far it's worked out great. Um, but – Having been to a lot of breweries, at least in the area, in the in the greater D.C. metro area, I'm starting to see as the number like approaches 7,000 or exceeds 7,000 Yeah, now, we're past it now. Um, sort of three different styles of breweries open up or three different models, yeah. I would say. Um, there's the distribution model. There's the we're opening, we're canning, we're kegging, we're distributing. There's the sort of local – pub model, which is uh, a lot of breweries just opening up saying, we're not really focused on distributing. We want to be the neighborhood gathering place. Yeah, the tap room, yeah. The tap room. And we're going to have our, uh, you know, we're going to have our flagships and there's going to be an IPA and there's going to be a Saison and there's going to be a Hefe in the summer, you know, uh, a Weizen in the summer and all of these things. And then there's the local experimental (laughs) model that I'm looking at or the nano brewery, maybe another way to look at it. So there's a place I'm wearing the t-shirt from, uh, from Bad Wolf Brewing Company in Manassas. Virginia, they're brewing 40-gallon batches down there. And so they've got six taps and they're just flipping over really, really fast. And then the episode of Brew Daddies that's coming out tomorrow is about a brewery in a little town called Crofton, Maryland called Chesapeake. They've got 25 taps, but they're brewing – they're all very small batches and they're just going through – You know, they're doing 50-gallon batches basically – 
All right. So a little less than two barrels. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what the owner of Brewer was telling us is like, if you come in on any given Saturday and then come back a week later, almost nothing will be the same. It sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. And he's the, he's the, when this comes out, you got to listen to this, John, but, but he's the, he's the only brewer <laughs> in this place and he's churning out stuff. But his idea is, first of all, and at least in the case of uh, Chesapeake, he, it's all real ale. It's all cask ale. It's everything he's doing. So it's really exhausting. Yeah. And he's experimenting with a lot of stuff. So mm-hmm. anyway, but, so, so the, but the point of the question is those are sort of the three styles of breweries I'm seeing open up. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. Or is, yeah. yeah. And each has their own draw. Um, I think the ones who are opening up right now who want to distribute in the way that traditional breweries have are finding the marketplace harder. Yeah. You know, it's harder to get a toehold in retail accounts uh, at bar tap handles by nature of size. Yeah. You know, the the bar down the street from here, uh, which has maybe always had you know five craft handles or whatever, they're not adding on for each new brewery that opens up sure. or they're not growing with the times. They still have those five. And so if you are a brand new brewer and you want to come in and you have to prove yourself, you know, right off the bat and you have to prove yourself against – proven winners like Sierra Nevada and sure. New Belgium and Sam Adams, like right off the bat that have, you know, the time and talent uh, to actually sell these bars. So that's hard. Uh, the last model of the Nano with the continuously changing taps and so many taps, I worry about those guys because 25 taps is a lot to fill. Mm-hmm. And if you are brewing something different each week and you are training your regular customers and you know the ones who actually do come by once a week when you're open, uh, that they should expect something different every week. That's really hard. Yeah, you know because ten weeks in, when you're starting to run low on ideas because you've already done you know three hundred <laughs> beers, right. um, it's going to be really hard to you know to keep people happy. Also, there's nothing that keeps people coming back like, oh, I really like your pale ale, or oh, sure. I really like your IPA. Yeah. The reason that Sierra Nevada has done so well is because it's the house that Pale Ale built. Mm-hmm. All of the other beers that they do are fun, but that's, you know, the majority, the vast majority of their business is still Pale Ale because people like drinking that beer. They know exactly what it's going to taste like, and it's 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 good, it's reliable, that kind of thing. These small nanos that are doing this type of thing, like it's, it's, a, it's a tough strategy. And I think the ones who have made it to the next level – and to that second pool that you're talking about of being a tap room where they've grown, they've gone into a real system of 10 barrels, 20 barrels, whatever, um, they've had a beard to sort of hang their hat on or at least a style that they're known for. Um, and right. real cask ale isn't necessarily something that the U.S. has ever embraced. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know if it's still a, you know, overthrowing King George, but like it's <laughs> – but there's something about, you know, cask ale in America which has just never caught on and – as much as I would like to see it happen, I I don't think it will yeah. on any great thing. Um, but the taproom model, I love it. I think it's cool. I think like they've become parts of the neighborhood and they're making beers where like all sorts of people can come in. If you have 12 different taps, but you're always going to get a Cezanne, always going to get a lager, always going to get something. You can meet the brewer. You can you know see like-minded people who enjoy good beer. Um, and that's the cool thing about these taprooms is you know when they're open – six, seven days a week, uh, and they're bringing people together and they're acting like a bar, it it makes beer the great equalizer in a lot of ways. You know, beer doesn't know politics, beer doesn't know gender, beer doesn't know strife. So you can come from any walk of life, 
you know, and if you like a Cezanne and the guy down the, the bar from you likes the Cezanne, you can talk about the Cezanne, but you know, you might have different political leanings. You at least have one thing to start in on. And I love the local tap rooms as well because they really key into the neighborhoods. And I, I when I travel, um, I get a really good sense of place of right. even just you know, micro neighborhoods, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to tap rooms. And, you know, I, I, I think it's a model that can work going forward. Yeah, I think so, too. And having visited all three kinds, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that if I'm just going out and, you know, I, I got a couple hours to kill and Adam and I are just being by myself, you know, decide to go to a brewery, I tend not to go to the distributor tap rooms as much anymore. And I'm going to the neighborhood breweries, not because... Not because the distributors aren't fantastic. Yeah. So I live close to three stars. Um, it's the closest brewery to my house. I can literally walk there. But it's a distribution brewery. And so the tap room is usually never the same people. And it's, it's it, they have a really nice setup there. But it's it's kind of a lot of people moving through quickly. It's focused on doing a lot of tours. Yeah. E- all the beers that they have on tap are usually sort of the same things. And so now I just tend to go to one of the two neighborhood, just local tap rooms, folks who aren't really doing a lot of distribution that are in my area because I can sit and I can talk to the guy behind the bar. You know, they're serving. I can talk to the guy behind the bar. I can talk to the other people who are drinking there. And we've all come because there's two or three beers on tap that we know we'll like and we're spending the afternoon. I'm working on my computer. You know, like we're just hanging out. But see, I I don't necessarily know if that has to do with the distribution model as opposed to – the the brewery's business model, you know, if they're not making a space that makes you as a regular, you know, feel comfortable or have that same vibe, I, you know, I I've been fortunate, you know, I've gone to I'll, I'll use Sierra Nevada again as a as a base point, uh, the Mills River location down in North Carolina mm-hmm. that they opened up a couple of years ago, that sees more tourists than just about any brewery in the country right now, right. and they have this tap room though where there's locals that are sitting at the bar that meet up every day at 530. Uh, It is their local bar as well. And then there's, you know, folks like me who are just banging through for the afternoon. I I think it comes down to business philosophy as well of like, do you want to treat your locals like like regulars? Um, And I always think of the old adage, you know, in show business, be nice to the people on the way up because you're going to see them on the way back down. down. You know, if, if you're a brewery that suddenly becomes too cool to, you know, play to your local audience, and I mean like your zip code, as Mm -hmm. it were, you're going to need those people. At some point, right. you know, like it's cool if you're jetting off to all of the cool festivals in the country and people are trading your beers in California and Oregon and and, and beyond. But at some point, you're going to need your, your local community again. And that's where, yeah, you know, the base is going to. And a lot, yeah. a lot actually has to do with location, right? So the distributing breweries, particularly in D.C., are all in industrial areas. Sure. So they don't have like their customers aren't walking down the street yeah. by and large. I mean, yes, I can walk to, you know, three stars. But I'm walking through industrial, you know, areas. They're an industrial facility in an industrial park, whereas, uh, say, uh, the, the, one of the newer ones that opened up in Silver Spring, Astro Lab, they're surrounded by residential. They're surrounded by apartment buildings, and that's yeah. what that's their market is. People just, you know, walking two blocks to come and visit them. So that I think has to do with it. Now to change subjects, you mentioned earlier sort of the fact that you know beer is politics neutral and gender neutral and all that. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about something you spoke of in the book, the fact that the industry, the brewing industry and the independent brewing or craft brewing, you know, remains dominated by white men. Yeah. Um, 
I want you to talk a little bit about why that should change and how we as lovers of good beer can help to uh, promote change in the industry, if you have ideas on that. Yeah. So it's a really – it's a delicate subject, but it's also not at the same time because it's conversations that I think we need to have. And the clientele of beer is certainly so much more diverse than it was even when I first started writing about it 15 years ago. You know, it's cool walking into a tap room and seeing families, you know, and and seeing all kinds of families uh, and seeing generational, uh, you know, groups of families as well or, you know, coworkers um, – you know, hanging out after work and, you know, so it's male, female and you know, folks from all different backgrounds and everything like that. Um, we're seeing more and more of that. But I think, in, you know, in a lot of ways, it is still very much a male dominated industry, especially in the actual locations themselves, you know, right. like breweries employing, you know, white men for the most part. Um, and in some cases, it's because in brew houses, it's it's more physical work. Traditionally, um, you know, women were brewers back sure. in colonial times and and beyond. It was just one of the the duties of the household, uh, as it were. But then when it became more of an industrial product, and we started talking about like weighted sacks of grain and everything else like that, like there's women who do it and who are excellent at it. I can't do it. I've you know I've seen you know, but <laughs> I, you know I've been, right. you know. But I think for the most part, like it's just sort of skewed that way. And to get out of that mindset, um, I think you have to have ownership that understands that and gets into looking at diversifying their their employee base. So it starts there. And then uh, that also seeps into the customers that you get as well. And so if you're a brewery owner and you're looking around and you're like, wow, this really looks like a Gap ad from, you know, 1985 <laughs> before right. they started doing, you know, like, you know, the Gap ads of today. It's like, yeah, maybe I should – Think about why I'm doing this or, you know, like why it's like this. You know, are we sending a message out? Are we promoting something that we don't necessarily mean to do? Um, and there's some cool breweries like Denison's is here. Mm -hmm. um, right. And Julie Verratti, I think, is is one of the great champions of diversity She's in beer fantastic. right now. And yeah, when you Julie's go great. to that brewery, you know, I've seen the pictures. Like it's it's multicultural. It's, you know, multigenerational. It's, you have um, a good cross-section of people because that's what they're promoting. And that's what right. there is top of mind for them. And so I think if more brewers are thinking about that. And then it also helps you define – the beers that you're going to make like hey we're seeing that you know there's people who really enjoy drinking amber ales and you know mm -hmm. we, we keep getting asked for an amber ale let's make one and let's make money off of giving the customers who are coming here what they want because it's the business at the end of the day sure. and so not everything has to be hazy juicy ipa not everything has to be pastry stout not everything has to be i think the the brewers that have diversity on their tap lists as well as you know in their tap rooms um are the ones who can make a good living going forward for a longer period of time. Yep, I totally agree. Denizens is, in fact, one of the breweries that I can walk to from my house. Uh, and one Lucky man. I, I, visit, I visit very often. Yeah. Are there other breweries in the D.C. area that, that are on your favorites list? Oh, man. It's a tough question to ask, I know. Yeah, it's – that is a tough question. Um, years ago, there's a guy named Charlie Gow who is a, a great man of beer who lived down in this area. And he was uh, – when I was at Beer Connoisseur, which was a magazine that existed and no longer does. And he was their tasting panel director. And he uh, – I was the associate editor at the magazine. So I'd come down and do the tasting panels with him and stay at his house out in Falls Church. And he would take me to Mad Fox. And oh, yeah. this was right after Bill Madden opened up his place. And uh, it's, I think, the first place – and I was a young buck drinker at the time. Uh, but one of the first places where I learned an appreciation for Kolsch. Yeah. 
They do a nice one. They really do. Um, you know, and there's nothing like the authentic, you know, going to Cologne and, and drinking sure. that stage and yeah, yeah, doing that whole course. thing. But, but yeah, Mad Fox in my mind of just sitting down and having conversations with Charlie who passed away a couple of years ago uh, after a bout with cancer. I, I think about Mad Fox often and have a soft spot in my heart for, for that brewery just because of the memories that were forged there as okay. well. Yeah. yeah, no, that makes sense. And if anybody from Mad Fox is listening to this, we've been trying to get you on the show for a while. So yeah, Bill Madden, come on, on. Bill, come on, man. Um, we actually he's had an not, exchange. He's not listening. I know. He's, yeah. not, listening. <laughs> he's not listening. We I'll got see close. Him, I'll see him tonight. I'll tell him. Tell him you were on, on the, the Brew Daddies. Daddies. Because we have, we have actually exchanged and we were going to schedule something and then okay. we started getting toward the holidays. Yeah, I'm doing a panel that. with him tonight. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Where are you going to be tonight? Solid State Books. Oh, right. When right, this right. airs weeks from now. This is actually uh, going to air a couple of weeks from now, so it's not going to matter that much. The book will still be available. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And speaking of the book, the book is called Drink Beer. Think beer, getting to the bottom of every pint. Uh, I have read it twice. Wow! Just to get ready for this, I haven't read it twice, and uh, and also because <laughs> for a variety of reasons, I like we started this podcast over a year ago just for fun. It was mm-hmm. just like, hey, let's just go to talk to a bunch of breweries. Yeah. Um, but now I take it very very seriously. So I'm uh, I'm doing the server training from Cicerone. I'm really sort of stepping up my ability to talk knowledgeably about the product and about the industry. Uh, and it's a great book. It is so easy to read. Thanks. Uh, it is, uh, it's really very straightforward and it addresses just about everything that there is to talk about in the beer industry. And, and so I learned a lot from it and I really appreciate that. Thanks. Well, listen, it has been great to have you on the Brew Daddy. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much, John. I hope we get a chance to talk again. Yeah. And, uh, I always end poorly because normally, <laughs> normally Adam, wow. Normal, wow, that is just, yeah, that is that's, the worst. Yeah. Normally Adam ends the show by saying, always drink good beer. Sure. And he's not here to do Well, that. everybody should always, don't let him own the catchphrase, man. If you're the one sitting in the host chair, just, you know, step up All and. Right. All right. Yeah. Everybody always drink good beer. Thanks, John. <laughs> it is. Cheers. Cheers.